Thank you for joining us. So I'll just uh, do a quick recap for those who are, are new to our class today. <clears throat> so we are going through the book of 2 Samuel. And really the book of 2 Samuel is a misnomer. There is really no 2 Samuel. Um, it's thought that the, the books that we have today, are 1 and 2 Samuel, were written together as one cohesive work um, in antiquity. And um, if you read the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called Kingdoms. First, and essentially Kingdoms is... First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, they tend to comprise essentially a single work, probably <clears throat> a collection of pieces over time that were that were unified together into a single narrative. Second Samuel, like First Samuel, continues the story of David, the first, well, let me say, second anointed king of Israel, but really the first powerful king of Israel who really unified all twelve tribes and really conquered the enemies. And today we're going to talk about that. <clears throat> This map that I've drawn here is the region of Israel, which is also called Palestine, which is also called Canaan. And within this region, which is today the modern-day country of Israel, this is where David <coughs> held his court. He has conquered Jerusalem. In the beginning of 2 Samuel, he has conquered Jerusalem to make it his capital. He has moved the ark there, and we'll talk about this in a minute, how the um, chapters of 2 Samuel are probably out of place chronologically, but at some point the Ark of the Covenant is moved to Jerusalem, <clears throat> put into a tent there, and this is where David has his capital. <clears throat> Today we're going to talk about now that David has gone through the process of solidifying his power and unifying all 12 tribes. Remember, Israel <clears throat> is really a collection of 12 groups of people that we call tribes, um, which towards the beginning of his reign and, and certainly at the, uh, after Solomon's reign is really divided into two halves. The northern half, which is confusingly called Israel, is comprised of 10 different tribes of Israelites. And the southern two tribes, which we call Judah, is Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which are centrally located here kind of in the south. <clears throat> David has now, through what we have read, many chapters here, consolidated his power and he is now in charge of all of Israel, so all 12 tribes. And now he is ready to start defeating all of the enemies. Now, <clears throat> what I want to talk about today, and, and again, we can look at our timeline here, which I think is really important because you may, you know, depending on your, your uh, knowledge of the Bible <clears throat> and the history of the Bible, maybe not really know exactly when all of this is taking place. It helps to kind of anchor ourselves chronologically. Um, here we have 2000 BC. So this is BC, before Christ. That is 4,000 years ago. 2000 BC, you see my timeline moves to the right to 1 BC. Jesus is born, uh, confusingly, in 4 BC, we think. But, you know, again, 1 BC is here. There is no zero. So the next year after that would be 1 AD. And then we are in, of course, now... 2021. It's, it gets hard to remember that. You'd, you'd say, <laughs> you'd write the check, 2020, but who does checks, right? So 2021 AD... Anno Domine, the year of our Lord, 2021. So that is, woof, that's a long time ago. 2000 BC is the era of the patriarchs. Patriarchs meaning the fathers of the, of the uh, nation of Israel. And remember, Israel is not just a physical country in the past. It's a, it's a cultural meaning. <clears throat> it's a religious meaning. And so the fathers of the, of the Israelite nation or Israelite religion, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, exist in this period. There is a um, sojourn to Egypt, um, probably around 1800 BC, that lasts for 400 years. And after 400 years, Moses leads his people out of Egypt in what we call the Exodus. 
I subscribe to the early date exodus theory of around 1450 BC when they left Egypt, and then we enter the period of the judges. And so for 400 years, Israel or the Israelites are ruled by a series of leaders that are also called judges, <clears throat> Samson probably being the most popular. What we're going to talk about today is what happens when David consolidates his power. If you look at chapters 8, 9, and 10, you will see that these are, these are primarily battle chapters. These are war chapters, talking about the battles and the victories that David achieves through warfare against his neighbors. And we're going to talk about why that worked. We're going to talk about why he did it, why it worked, and some of the ramifications of what is happening here. Um, what we're going to talk about is a little bit of history. I'm not going to get too crazy into this. We'll talk about this in a minute. Some of the factors that, that contributed to it, you're going to add to this list. So I like people to contribute and ask that. There are no wrong answers. Um, there are, but I'm nice about it. And then we'll talk about this. So I think we're going to just jump right in here and read Second uh, Samuel chapter 8. So who would like to read that for me? 1 through... 18. I can start off with that. Thank you, sir. All right. So after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methig Amma out of the hand of Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to, to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 12,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betta and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Then Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer. Toi sent his son Jerem to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. <clears throat> These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. <clears throat> and David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons... In Edom, throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zedek, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abathar, were priests, and Zariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoda, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. <coughs> Methuselah, uh, Shalom, you did a very, you did a very good job there, um, my Jewish brother. Uh, congratulations. Um, <coughs> you made it. 
So let, let's, yeah, you didn't even know, yeah. right? Uh, I think that's, that's the ritual. You have to read 2 Samuel 8 and you become a Jew. That's, that, I think that's, <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> I can't breathe. Okay. Let's pause there briefly because I want to get into nine pretty quickly, but what what do you take from this? I find it fascinating that David went in and defeated. He had victory Mm -hmm. because there was mention of Toy who had been at war with whoever. In my mind, that's they're battling all the time. And not really a clear winner a lot of times in mm-hmm. battle. Just keep battling. Yep. And David just went and just he just won. Mm-hmm. Found that interesting. That okay. But well, we. Said, yep. I think it says it twice that the Lord helped him out. I mean, he brought victory to David. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that for a minute because this is important. Um, remember, I, I ask three things when you study the Bible: who wrote it, who are they writing it to, and why did they write it. The author, or maybe I would say kind of redactor or editor of the material who has put this material into place, for that author, who is winning the battles? God is. God is. For the author, the author wants you to be very clear here. It's not David and his brilliance that's doing this. It's God who is doing it, and they make that mention several times. I think that's, that stands out. That stands out. I mean, I, Turns all the stuff over to the Lord. Yes. Battles all done. That's another good point. Because what does he do with the, with the gold and the silver? And the bronze. And the bronze. Yeah. Exactly. He. Uh, <coughs> yeah. He doesn't. You know, because like it's a contrast to Saul earlier. Yeah. Saul was having his men take it, like, because he felt like he needed to get the men to like him, and you know, he always felt tenuous as the king, so he was mm-hmm. always like trying to make the the people happy. But mm-hmm. David knows. He just needs to make God happy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because God is the one who's giving him the victory, so he's giving all his spoils to God. Exactly, exactly. You know, I'm jumping in here. Welcome. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what that's, I do. I jump yeah, into yeah. conversations that I haven't heard uh-huh. the first part of. <laughs> so, um, I think in the big picture, it's God who made the covenant with David or with Israelites and it's all about God it isn't about David David's a a tool Mm -hmm. for God Mm -hmm. Um, and in in the previous chapter 7 God made the covenant and said I'm going to defeat your enemies so what else is he going to do? Mm -hmm. He's going to defeat the enemies of Israel Mm -hmm. Perfect Perfect. That's a good one And so when we get into this list we're going to make comment of that because that's the obvious one here that, that we need to add here. <clears throat> Do we know where Zoba is? Mm, I didn't draw it on my map. I mean, I think, I think it's, I, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's in the north here. And I think that's where a lot of this happens because as we're about to see, the uh, Arameans or Syrians are going to come and intervene in a battle um, between Israel and the Ammonites. And so... I think the point here is that a lot of these battles here, remember, um, David has already fought some battles with the Philistines. He will continue to fight them. In fact, after 2 Samuel, very little is said at all about the Philistines until, until I think, Isaiah, maybe, much later in the the Bible. So the Philistines, at some point, are going to become a non-issue 
for David. Well, he is he is going to really kind of. I think in well, verse one it says that he subdued them, and that's it. But he's been yeah. fighting them for how many years now, up to this point, yeah. even before he was king. And think about that too, because that's going to be part of our list over here of how how that came to be. So once he's kind of mopped up here in the west, now he's got to take care of all of the east. And remember, we'll talk about this too in a minute. There's a very good reason why this is this is so successful at this period. Okay. Um, some of you may may have noticed, depending on your translation, um, verse 18 says, "And David's sons were priests." How many of your translations say priests? Yeah, mine yeah. says priests. Okay. <clears throat> mine says chief ministers. So the 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 Hebrew here is Cohen. <clears throat> What does Cohen mean? It means priest. So, you know, a Jewish last name is common to have the name Cohen. It means priest. <clears throat> um, priest <laughs> in antiquity meant different things. It's kind of like today. Um, there are several Greek words that, that are applied to a Christian minister. <clears throat> um, and those words tend to mean <clears throat> not just a religious figurehead, like a high priest. They can mean minister. Um, they can mean ruler. Um, I believe the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the, of the Old Testament, translates this princes. Um, and so you can see here how <clears throat> there's a lot of meaning here. And I don't want to get too much into this because I think it kind of helps explain if you read priests, you might be a little bit confused because, Brian, didn't you say that in the Old Testament, the Levitical law states that only Levites could be priests, <clears throat> um, and a certain type of Levite could only be high priest. Yes, that's true, but you also have to remember that Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. That had nothing to do with the Levitical law, <clears throat> and he wasn't a Levite. <clears throat> we have a famous priest today, our only priest, high priest, who reigns, if you're a Christian, and who is that? <clears throat> Jesus. Jesus Christ. <clears throat> My Bible says royal advisors. Yep. Royal advisor. Yeah, I think a court official would be royal advisor. I think that would be the synonymous case there. So, so you can see now, <laughs> this gets into the whole problem with translation. All translators are traitors. Who has heard that phrase before? <laughs> okay. All translators are traitors. Why? Because there's no way. There, it's impossible to translate from one language to another, words one for one. It just doesn't work. Why? Because words in, in one language mean a whole collection of things. And I think what you're finding here is priest means royal official. <clears throat> it means religious figurehead. It means prince. It means leader. It means minister. So in this case, David's sons... While it is possible they were acting in some kind of religious leadership sense, they were, they were not the high priest of the time. They were probably acting in this, this kind of Cohen. So this is Cohen here. This is what the sense of Cohen means. For English, we have to have one, two, three, four, five, six ways of saying it. Okay? So that's all I'm getting at here. Isn't, isn't Melchizedek Jesus that Abraham gave him 10%. I'm, I'm not going to go there today. No, we're not talking about that. Join us in the future. We'll talk about that some oh, other time. Bless your heart. I love you, Lorna. Bless your heart. Okay. 
All right, I do want to do chapter nine, and I already have a volunteer for chapter nine who has before class. See, this is gold stars for all of you. Well, it's my wife. She said she's <laughs> doing it. Always have gold stars. Yeah, I know. One to 13. You want to do that? Okay. David asked, is there anyone still left in, in Saul's family? I want to show kindness to that person for Jonathan's sake. Now, there was a servant named Ziba from Saul's family. So David's servants called Ziba to him. King David said to him, are you Ziba? He answered, yes, I am your servant. The king asked, is anyone left in Saul's family? I want to show God's kindness to that person. So Ziba answered the king, Jonathan has a son still living who is crippled in both feet. The king asked Ziba, where is this son? Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Emil in Lodabar. Then King David had servants bring Jonathan's son from the house of Machir, son of Emil in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, came before David and bowed face down on the floor. David said, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth said, I am your servant. David said to him, don't be afraid. I will be kind to you for your father Jonathan's sake. I will give you back all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed to David again and said, you are being very kind to me, your servant, and I am no better than a dead dog. Then King David called Saul's servant Ziba. David said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants will farm the land and harvest the crops. Then your family will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to King David, I, your servant, will do everything my master the king commands me. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as if he were one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. Everyone in Ziba's family became Mephibosheth's servants, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Okay, thank you very much. Excellent. It's like you practiced. <laughs> what do you take from this? This is kind of interesting because it kind of seems out of place. Now, when we read chapter 10, we're going to go right back to the battlefield. <clears throat> um, what, what is the significance of chapter 9? Why is it in here? Why did the author put this in here? Who cares? Well, he did tell David, or David, David told Jonathan when they parted that he would always take care of his family because yeah. Jonathan knew hmm? that, you know, he wasn't hmm? destined to be the king of Israel. He knew that David was. And so that usually leads to <laughs> some people getting killed, I think. So he kind of wanted David's promise that he would always take care of his family. Yeah. Most kings, when they won a battle, they would take that king's family and they were gone. This is it. This is exact. This is it. And she, you know, you're right too, Laura. But but I think the the <coughs> point here, and I think the reason why the author even put it in, because look, we've already talked about Melchizedek. I'm sorry, I got Melchizedek on the mind. Dump it out. I'm not talking about it. It's black hole. Um, the reason why Meshibit. <laughs> The reason why Mephibosheth is mentioned here, it's already, he was already mentioned a few chapters earlier, if you remember. <clears throat> uh, he was mentioned earlier uh, during all of the turmoil of the divided monarchy here. Um, why bring it up again? I think this is why. Because the author wants to make the case here about a couple of things. First of all, in antiquity, and even today in, the, in, in less civilized parts of the world, if you want to call it that anymore, it's probably not even appropriate to say that, <clears throat> is that when there is a succession of power, the loser and his family are the losers. 
Like, they lose everything. Why? Because they are a threat to the new regime. And as long as they live, there will be some, look, you know, all you have to do is go, you know, read the history of any kind of monarchy uh, uh, in the world and you'll read about when a new family or house takes power, the old house and family is always there with someone who's gonna say, I'm the legitimate king. And there's gonna be a war, or there's gonna be a battle, or there's gonna be assassination. And as long as those people are alive, they have the motive, and others who, who would, would be, you know, who would benefit from those people being in power also have a motive to make that person the king. As long as Mephibosheth is alive, he is a threat to David, let's be honest. He is a threat to him. However, <laughs> I think the author is trying to make a couple of cases here. First of all, what do you notice about Mephibosheth? The author makes a comment about his physical attributes twice, at least twice. What, what is that? His feet. His, his feet, he's crippled, he's lame. He is, he is not able to walk properly. Why would the author put that in there? He's not really a threat. Maybe. That, that might be part of it. That might be part of it, but why else? He can't defend himself. Yeah, okay. I like the idea of this, the idea that he's, he is a weak person and thus would be easy to take. But why does it matter? No value. He's, he's valueless. He has no place in society, really. Who is a king in antiquity? Military leader. A military leader. Is this guy going to ever be a military leader? No. I bet your buckets he isn't. Why? He can't stand on the battlefield. He can't walk amongst his troops. He can't wield a sword and fight others. And, and make no mistake about it, most kings in antiquity <coughs> fought in battle at the front, well, generally, at the front of the battle lines. Um, how do you inspire your troops? You don't do it. You don't do it from a bench. You do it standing up tall. Yeah, you are powerful. You represent, and think of it too more abstractly. Who, you know, and I made this comment last week about who we elect as our leaders in the West. We don't elect our leaders based on their objective criteria capability to be a leader. That's never happened. I'm sorry if that hurts you. I'm sorry if you're now going to cry and never come back. That's the truth. You, you elect people who you identify with or who you think are great, who you think embody leadership. They are the people who you think are the, the pinnacle, right, of your civilization and represent you in all of its ways. Why would you want a person who was crippled and sitting, you know, maybe even lying in a bed all day to say that is the, the best human of our society? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. And thus the author is making a very clear case here. This guy can't be king. He can't be king. So he's not even a threat. Now I'm going to ask you again, why is this in here? I think it shows David is being kind because he had a close, this, this young man's father and David, they were very close. Yep. And, and I think he still had happy feelings for Saul as well. You know, so that's why I, I think, you know, David, David knew that this young man couldn't be a threat to him. And he was showing the, the whole uh, kind of family mercy in a way, in love. 
Larry and Gene, you guys get gold stars for being, <laughs> so, f you know, you guys are contributing. Uh, we have many people as guests who come and don't, and don't say a word. I appreciate that. You're absolutely on the right track here. I think the author is making the case that A, this guy can't be king, but B, more importantly, David is a benevolent leader for letting him live. Look well, at how great David is. Say it again. Verse, at the very beginning, verse one, David doesn't know who is alive. Hmm. He doesn't know if this could be a military leader or any, you know. He doesn't know it's Mephibosheth who's lame in both feet. He just says, is there anyone alive? I want to show kindness to that person. Mm -hmm. So we could say that you know, he doesn't even know who he's going to show kindness mm -hmm. to. But then you find out that it's mm -hmm. someone who actually turns mm -hmm. out to not be a threat to him. Mm -hmm. but I think I mean, that's the thing about David, though, is that he doesn't really worry about who's a threat and who's not because he tries mm -hmm. to focus on... Like, he knows that God has anointed him king, and that's... And I what think you would on. be, I think the author of 2 Samuel probably has the same philosophical mindset as Laura. I think, I think you both share the same mindset. David is a great guy and a great leader who is benevolent and wants to look out for the family of Saul. I agree with that. And also, he completely trusts in God. He knows who God is and mm -hmm. what he has been appointed as. There you so. go. It shows God's nature. Ah. How's that? Mercy, mm -hmm. kindness. Mm -hmm. It's you know I don't. We read a lot about the wars and battles and killing and yep. death to thousands of people, and that's not really God's nature. The the mercy and the love and the care and the being considered of the less the least, right? And now it starts to make sense why this was stuck right in the middle of all this. Why is chapter 9 stuck right in the middle of the battles? And, and to be sure, who knows when this happened. If I look at this in chapter 9, remember, keep in mind, all of the Old Testament is not written strictly chronologically. Chapter 9 could have taken place, if I look at this, <clears throat> at any time in David's reign. I mean, I don't really see any key indicators here of exactly when it happened. Chapter 9 could have happened... 10 years in, one year in, 40 years in. We're not really sure. The point is, the author has taken some material, which has probably happened at a different period, and put it in here for a reason. He wants to make the case, which I think that Ken is saying here. Folks, David is conquering his enemies because God told him to. God expects it. But God, God's nature is being revealed here in the midst of all of this, is saying, but that's, you know, God is not a tyrant. God is not a tyrant. It's really just say God is just a warrior and he's just out yep. to you know, smite me, oh mighty spider. You know, as we're going along, it's just battle after battle yep. after battle after battle. And it's like, oh, wait, let's remind us mm -hmm. who really God is, too. I like well, that. It's not, it's not in spite of, it's in spite of. Yep. It's not one or the other. Right. I like that. Well, when David asked about this, he, he said he wants to show God's love. Now, he isn't putting it necessarily that it's his love, mm -hmm. but it, it probably is because he's a man after God. Mm -hmm. So he's showing God's love to Jonathan's family, Saul's family. Mm -hmm. so. And this is not outside his nature. He's been acting like this the whole time. Even He had how many chances to kill Saul? He never did because he put his complete mm -hmm. faith and trust in mm -hmm. God that he's going to take care of it. Excellent. I think, you know, and I think Laura's right. When you read verse 1, it says he doesn't know if he's crippled or not. Is there somebody out there that I can show kindness mm -hmm. to? 
and maybe he wasn't crippled. Maybe mm -hmm. he would be a strong military leader. I don't, I don't think um, David would have, um, it would have, would not have mattered to David. I think mm -hmm. he still would have ate at his table because David's trust and faith mm -hmm. is all in God. So. It doesn't say that Mephibosheth was hiding, but it's almost, sounds like. I mean, he didn't know where he was. He wasn't exactly making himself obvious either. It makes sense if he was hiding. Yeah. yeah. I also found it interesting. He might not have been hiding just from David, too. Remember what happened to Ishbosheth? It wasn't David who ordered the assassination of Ishbosheth. Again, it was people allied with David, or at least wanted to be favored by David, who found Ishbosheth, the previous ruler, and I think in his house. You know, and I bet some of the people that followed David did not agree with his decision here either. Mm -hmm. With bringing him to the table, why what? are you bringing this guy? Great leaders don't have unanimous support. Oh, what are you talking about? That's weird. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll get out. Well, then, late. I mean, to like read ahead a little. I mean, Mephibosheth kind of betrays David at the end there, so he was. <laughs> so. But. Okay. It's likely. He wouldn't have killed him anyway, because he was part of Jonathan's. Even he he wouldn't have killed Jonathan. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know? Yep. Yep. And I think that shows. I think that gets at what Laura's point is, which is, um, you know, David has a lot of love for the family of Saul, not just because he was the anointed king of Israel by God and he respected that, but because he was best friends with his son Jonathan, and. Now we find Jonathan's son is alive. And of course, I think, you know, David probably, you know, <laughs> the exclamation here in, what is it, six, David said, Mephibosheth. <laughs> yeah, and maybe he looked like Jonathan. Yeah. He reminded him of him. And Mephibosheth has a son, too. Yes, yes, a young son. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Awesome. Okay. What does it it's mean to eat cool at his table? Eat. What does it mean for him to eat at his table? What does that imply? You're part of the royal court. Yeah. This is it. You're family. You're part of the royal court. You're family. You're on the inside. Look, not everyone eats at the king's table, guys. Even, even some of the chief advisors don't eat at that table. Sorry, you were going to say something? Oh, um, oh, just that, you know... Of all the things he could have done for him, like it's pretty generous to give him back all of Saul's lands. I mean, mm -hmm. that makes him, you know, mm -hmm. pretty powerful. I mean, right. to have a lot of, because I'm sure the king had a lot of land. It mm -hmm. wasn't just like. What is land in antiquity? <coughs> power, power and money. <laughs> power and money. Power and money. That's, uh, that's a gutsy move. And you get ready made servants. You have uh, 15 <laughs> sons and 20, so you get like, you know. 35 new servants yeah. that are going to go and farm it for you and then bring you the money and mm -hmm. the food from it. So. Exactly. What a, what a change in Mephibosheth's life mm -hmm. to go from basically hide now mm -hmm. to, I mean, I mean, this is not the picture of when we enter the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could it be like, that. like you keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of a thing? Yeah. Spreading. Spreading. It's like a virus. Mm -hmm. is, like, older with his sons, may not be. Keep it.
Wilson come out of the woodwork. But I like what Ken said here. Say, say that again. Just that he went from a, a nobody, <coughs> basically, nobody even knew about him, to now he's in this great place. I mean, that's, you know, talks about, think about when we, <coughs> I'll just use this term, receive Christ and enter the kingdom of heaven. How, how much do we recognize? Now we're at the king's table. You know, we were nothing, basically. And then, and, and, and do, we, do we really sit at the table? Mm-hmm. I mean, are we becoming part of that family? Or are we kind of like, mm, I don't know. Well, and the reference to the king's table is means that you get the benefits of whatever the king has benefits mm-hmm. of. It's not just, you know, it represents more than just a physical table. It's, you're the inner circle. You get all the benefits of, of what the king right. has. So, you know, that's the same thing of what we would, will get in heaven is we have the benefits of everything of the Lord. I love this. This is a great application to us. I and think it, that's important for this. And the kingdom of heaven is now. You know, it's not just... The Greek is it has arrived. Not has arrived. Has there. already arrived. Yeah. We have it now. You have it. You have his inheritance now. Do we live like that, though? That's the thing. I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. Like, I struggle. Mm-hmm. I love it. Let's read chapter 10, and then we're going to talk about the bigger picture here. Chapter 10, verses 1, what is that, 19, 1 to 19, all the way? I'd like to do that. Sure. You want to read it next to a microphone? Oh, you take the one. Thank you. It's only $100, don't worry. <laughs> Okay. He can edit that. Exactly. <laughs> I can make him sound like Laura, so, you know. I'm joking. I can edit anything. I'm kidding. Go ahead. You got auto That's right. David defeats the Ammonites. Sometime after this, King Nahash of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan became king. David said, I'm going to show loyalty to Hanan, just as his father. Nahash was always loyal to me. So David sent ambassadors to express sympathy to Hanan about his father's death. But when David's ambassadors arrived in the land of Ammon, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanan, their master, Do you really think these men are coming here to honor your father? No, David sent them to spy out so the, spy out the city so they can come and conquer it. So Hanan seized David's ambassadors and shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their robes at the buttocks, and sent them back to David in shame. I do not know what the Hebrew for buttocks is. <laughs> when David heard what had happened, he sent messengers to tell the men, stay at Jericho until your beards grow out, then come back, for they felt deep shame because of their appearance. When the people of Ammon realized how seriously they had angered David, they sent and hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from the lands of Bethrehab and Zobah, 1,000 from the king of Makkah, and 12,000 from the land of Tob. When David heard about this, he sent Joab and all his warriors to fight them. The Ammonite troops came out and drew up their battle lines at the entrance of the city gate, while the Arameans from Zobah and Rahab, and the men from Tob and Makkah, positioned themselves to fight in the open fields. 
When Joab saw that he would have to fight on both the front and the rear, he chose some of Israel's elite troops and placed them under his personal command to fight the Arameans in the fields. He left the rest of the army under the command of his brother Abishai, who was to attack the Ammonites. If the Arameans are too strong for me, then come over and help me, Joab told his brother. And if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will come and help you. Be courageous, let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. When Joab and his troops attacked, the Arameans began to run away. And then the Ammonites saw the Arameans running. They came from Abishai and retreated to the city. After the battle was over, Joab returned to Jerusalem. The Arameans now realized that they were no match for Israel, so when they regrouped, they were joined by additional Aramean troops summoned by Hadadezer from the other side of the Euphrates River. These troops arrived at Helam under the command of Shobak and the commander of Hadadezer's forces. When David heard what was happening, he mobilized all Israel, crossed the Jordan River, and led the army to Helam. The Arameans positioned themselves in battle formation and fought against David. But again the Arameans fled from the Israelites. This time David's forces killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers, including Shobak, the commander of their army. When all the kings allied with Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they surrendered to Israel and became their subjects. After that, the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites. Great, thank you. And they say the Old Testament is boring. <laughs> no, just numbers. Just numbers. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't argue with that. Okay, um, and that's not entirely true. <laughs> I know, there's, there's what, do you, what do you take from this? Again, uh, and maybe what I'll do here is give you my, my lecture, and this is what, what puts you to sleep. Let's talk about how we got here. I want to talk about how David was able to do this. Now, of course, uh, if you are a, a, a Christian um, who believes that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and you believe what the message is of, of what is being said here, you say the reason that David was able to do this is because God was on his side. <clears throat> this was God's intent all along that David would not only <clears throat> unify his power with his own people, but he would essentially, and for lack of a better way to say this, destroy, essentially, his enemies. He's doing what they should have done when they came in in the first place, basically. True, true. Um, and, and 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 he's doing that because God expected him to do it. But now we're going to talk about, well, how did that work? Um... I make some, some comments in the past about the period of time that we're in. And again, this, this is the part that will put you to sleep. We are in, the, we're in the, the early days of the Iron Age. Iron meaning iron is now the most sophisticated technological... Uh, I already had a yawn. Did I hear a yawn? No, I sneezed. Oh, okay. Uh, that was good. See, you're not, you could have blamed it, and, and she would have been like, see, I'm not the only one. <laughs> we, we have a period in which... A lot of the powerful empires of the region have been destroyed. Now, this this thing called the Late Bronze Age Collapse, why do you care about that? Because around about 1150 BC, for reasons that are still very mysterious and people are not really sure why it happened, virtually all of the strong empires of the Mediterranean region collapsed. Overnight, within a period of 50 years, the Mycenaeans, the Egyptians, um, the, uh, the Hittites, the Mesopotamian, 
powers of this region over here, and certainly of Canaan itself, collapsed. Cities were burned and depopulated, completely depopulated. Um, literacy disappeared. This becomes what is called the Greek Dark Ages. If you've, heard, if you've ever studied classical Greece, this is the period in which there is no writing in Greek um, in the Mediterranean region, either in pottery or, um, or on inscriptions on stone. <clears throat> That lasts for a few hundred years, folks. So the repercussions of all of these civilizations that have collapsed lasts for a few hundred years. We are right in the middle of that. This is the, and you say to yourself, this is no accident. There's no accident that this happened. This created a huge power vacuum in this region that we call Canaan or, or Israel, because now David can essentially do what he's doing almost unimpeded. He has a elite fighting force. He has a strong army, a standing army. He has weapons, now of iron. And he can essentially do what has been very hard in the past to do. Um, what was hard for the, the period of the judges to do is to essentially consolidate their power here and wipe out their enemies. So now given that, what are the factors that enabled David's conquest of this region. This is one of them. So we have a power vacuum. Remember, in the end of 1 Samuel, where was David during that time? In a cave. He was in caves. Where else was he? In Philistia. Yes! Uh He was in the land of the Philistines. What was he doing in the land of the Philistines? Learning the trade. Learning, watching, mm-hmm. observing. Philistines were very good at what they did. Well, mm-hmm. then you say that the, the, before they had king, before they had an established king, that they were very poor. Mm-hmm. I mean, extremely poor. Yep. It was a poor region, mm-hmm. and, but you had Egypt that was really rich. You got mm-hmm. Assyria um, and uh, or else in the north. They're all very rich, but now you have it flip-flopped. Mm-hmm. So you have mm-hmm. all these big kingdoms collapsing. Mm-hmm. And David is rising up to power and able to destroy thousands, tens of thousands of people. So it's, it's really interesting. If you're the king of the Ammonites, or you're the king of the Moabites, and you're looking across the river here, and what's happening, what is that making you feel? Uh, very small and vulnerable. Very, very nervous. Very nervous. So what are you going to do? gonna hire the Aramean foot soldiers to come. <laughs> this is exactly it. Well, so you know what they say, when when a transition of power happens, that is the time to attack your enemy. Why? Because everything's in flux. Everything's changing. Now we don't know exactly when this happened. Um, it may not have been right when David was kind of you know consolidating his power, but it was still fairly early in the life of Israel being a strong kingdom. <clears throat> This is the point at which you attack. You attack now. Why? Because they're as weak as they will ever be. They're only getting stronger. Attack them now. <clears throat> you, you made the comment about living with the Philistines. Was it, was it Roger? Mm-hmm. You, you said it too. Yeah, and wasn't the Philistines the, kind of the first? Weren't they starting in the iron? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, see, Israel is getting all their weapons from learned. the Philistines. Iron Age. Technology And what else is he learning? The, the Philistines were very good at fighting war. In fact, again, part, the part that will put you to sleep is these are probably, there's another name for the Philistines, the Peleset. There's another name for them, the Sea Peoples. The Sea Peoples are, that is found in inscriptions, that these people flood in from the, <clears throat> essentially, the Aegean Sea area, probably through Crete, 
and they sweep down into places like Egypt and into Canaan and into Syria, and they wreak a lot of havoc. One of the reasons they do this is because they have iron as a weapon and they have military strategy. They're really good at fighting war. And once they get in here, dude, they're never going away. They are here. They are here to stay. So David is learning from this. So he gets their technology, but he also has their strategy. Now for the, well, tell me any others. Am I missing any other here before we get to the big one? It's just, well, his strategy is up there. It's, I mean, it, it lists out how many of the other armies died. Yeah. It doesn't list anything from the Philistine, or from the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Kind of lends itself to believe that they were, not none of them died, obviously, yeah. but numbers were very small in comparison. Yeah. And the um, way he took, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what exactly to hamstring a horse is. I'm assuming that's, you know, <coughs> It's exactly what you think. You take a sword or a knife and you cut the hamstring of a horse, but you don't kill it. What does that do to the horse? You can't walk. You can't pull a chair. You can't pull. He can. He can probably pull, um, and he can probably pl- he can probably pull a plow, and he can probably carry a person. What can he not do? Run, run, charge. What do you? What do horses run and charge for? People do this to humans too of the period, because it turns them into slaves that cannot fight. Another thing that they would do to a human is cut their thumbs off. Well, without a thumb, the whole reason you're a human being, it works so well, is you got opposable thumbs. You can carry a weapon. If you don't have thumbs, you can't carry a sword. So they're turning them into work animals. What does, what is, is it Deuteronomy? What does Deuteronomy say about the king and his horses? What does God expect the king of Israel to not have a lot of? Horses. Horses, for this very reason. And I think this shows, too, that David is honoring what God expects of him. He takes the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and he donates it to God. He takes the horses, and he hamstrings them. So he's trying to, I think, abide by what God is expecting of him, not to turn his wealth into power for himself. The big one here, of course, is that God is on David's side. And and I hate to say it that way. I'm not even going to say it that way because it's stupid. I'm going to say it this way. God is in charge. David's on God's side. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. That is a much better way to say it. David is on God's side. And I think even his, um, his the head of his army, yeah. Joab, mm-hmm. when he's saying, he's like, tells his brother, like, be strong, we must fight bravely, and the Lord will do what he thinks is right. Like, they know that. that, like... What they do has little value in what happens. It's what God wants to happen will happen. Our actions and our faith in God have to work together. Yeah. For their actions. So say that again, Steve. Well, our faith in God and our actions need to work together. And you have a leader who completely trusting God, and that's permeating all the way down to his his forces Mm -hmm. as well. And they see God working ahead of them. This is it. Working alongside him. What's that verse in the Bible that says, You show me your faith and I'll show you my actions or something? Mm -hmm. I think that's in James. Hmm? I think that might be in James. Maybe James? Might be in James, the book of James. James? Never never once does it talk about David's fear. Ah. Okay. We'll put it on this side too. Thank you. No? 
they faced the Ammonites and feared the great army never says anything like that ever. How many of us have fear? <laughs> How many of us call ourselves Christians and are afraid? Yeah, maybe I'm fired. I don't know. I will no? fear no evil. Songs, I was dude. just thinking about this That's yesterday. David. Yeah. <laughs> That's David. I was just thinking about that yesterday with the, the Holy Spirit. I mean, we have we are the temple yeah. of the Holy Spirit, and we have the Holy Spirit who is God in mm-hmm. us. I mean, we should have we should not have a spirit of timidity. We should have all sorts of confidence that we truly believe that God will do what He says He's going to do. We have no worries at all. How do I know I'm on God's side? How do I know I'm doing what he wants me to? To be courageous. I mean, when doors continue to open for you. Okay. You're stepping forward in <clears throat> faith and mm-hmm. it's being mm-hmm. blessed with... I feel like you're asking the same question you always ask. Okay. So yeah, you're, you're praying, you're reading okay. the Bible, Here we go. You're, Here we go. you're communicating <laughs> with God. You can't, you can't do any of these things. I mean, you can't... You can't think that you're doing yep. something that's God's will by not communicating. Right faster. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we joke about this. You know, what it, th- this is the answer every week. Now, how many of us do this? Look, we all know the answer. Pray. Mm-hmm. Read your Bible. Read your Bible every day. But, let me say. Listen. And on the read your Bible yep. part, I get that. <clears throat> but knowing learning who God is, learning the nature of Him, and, and reading the Bible is paramount in that. Why can't I just memorize Bible verses for Bible Bowl? So you're not studying. Yeah. What does studying mean? I mean, that, that's the, I think that's probably one of the biggest leaps I've made personally is uh, gone from reading the Bible yep. to studying the Bible. Yep. And it's a, uh, it's a uh, it's an intentional effort to understand what's being said as opposed to getting from point A to point B. You know, how fast can I read Leviticus to get through it? Instead of instead of going through five verses and then studying what those five verses mean. I love this. This is exactly I just it. saw somebody's their goal is to read the Bible in ninety days. Like why? Yeah. Where is that like learning? driving across country at 120 miles an hour? <laughs> hey, did you see all the sights? No. <laughs> what did you see? The, the road and my speedometer. Yeah. I had a friend who, uh, he read the Bible front to back, but it was, it was one of these Bible on tape things. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was going in the background while he's doing something else. Well, what are you trying to accomplish? Now, I, we bash on this a lot, and I, and I will say this caveat. There are... I don't know, 95% of the world's population don't even do that. They don't even, they don't even crack it open, listen to it on, on audio, whatever. The fact that they're trying to do that, I think, is noble. But I would encourage you to do what this class is, is obviously saying here, which is read it to know it. Read it to understand it. Why, why is it saying this? Again, who wrote it? Who did they write it to? Why was it written? What does this mean? Just because I'm reading about an ancient battle that happened 3,000 years ago does not mean there's no application for me today. Look how many things we're already writing about this. Does God's words never get sold? Love that. It's timeless. Mm -hmm. I love it. And God is so, his nature is so beyond our comprehension. We can never 
we can never really get our hands around it. But I say you can't. I, I agree with you in some ways. You know, my kids, you know, they make the comment about, and maybe they're not actually asking this, you know, when was God born? Like, how old is he? And there's some questions that really it's hard to explain the answer. I don't even really necessarily. What is God? Well, I really don't know what God is. Physically, I know who he is as a person. I think I know God's character very well. I think there are some things we can know. You're made in his image. I think we can know his nature. We can know his character. Do I know physically how he made the world through his creative word? No. <laughs> Will I ever? I hope. I hope. I say I, you know, I want to know. It was stated to me once by my mom's husband. He said, you know, I think I probably know more about God than you'll ever know. And I said, my response was, that's okay, because I'm not trying to find out more about him. I want to know him. Mm. And he wants to know you. Yeah, yeah. and that's and that's my point. When I say we can't ever really get, yeah, we can mm-hmm. know about his nature, but can you really grasp it? Really understand mm-hmm. it? And I mean, just you were talking about the Holy Spirit living in us, and we squelch the Spirit. That's somewhere in the New Testament too. Yeah. Why? <laughs> because we don't trust it. Mm-hmm. I don't. Th- I think we want to. For me personally, I think I want to be in control. <laughs> I want to do what I want to do kind of thing and it's like it's so much easier when you just allow God to do things for you in your life you know when you just step out in your faith but a lot of times I don't because I think I know better or or what I think this is a big one of this chapter of these three chapters this is it let go of our own control I think that's what you're seeing David and the Israelites do here you let go of his own pride his own ego, his desire to be a great person, mm-hmm. his desire to be the one that gets the accolades for the, the win. How many, how many of us, you know, get a promotion or, or get a better job and, and feel inside ourselves, I did a great job, I worked really hard for that, right? I'm sorry to say, you didn't. Yeah. You didn't. God, God blessed you. Well, and it's because of, one, because of one man who has learned to trust God from the field when he was tending the sheep and fighting off the bad yes. lion, because of his mm-hmm. courage, because of his trust in God, now mm-hmm. the whole nation benefits from that. Oh, I like that. So I like that. Fellowship is yep. really something yes. we put up there. And even going back to when he defeated Goliath, yeah. he faced that giant. He killed one man. One man, the biggest guy that the Philistines had with one stone or five stones. He had five stones, but with the first stone. I like that. And everybody saw it. The whole army of Israel saw that mm-hmm. and he did that. There's like a contrast because the David, at the beginning of this chapter, he is sending out messengers of peace to like be nice to the enemy. And they get their beard shaved off. And then like, <laughs> they are so worried about their mm-hmm. control, the Ammonites yes. are, yeah. that they are like, well, we can't trust anyone. Mm-hmm. We have to control our destiny. We can't be nice to David because this is probably a trick. And so, yeah, it's contrast between, like, yeah, David's. Well, so I do you know. shave the other half until the whole thing grows out again? I mean, I don't know, because it would. <laughs> I just <laughs> like that they shaved it off, and then they <laughs> also cut off their garments. <laughs> like, it's so funny. See, we're laughing, because it's funny. <laughs> but how, um, you know, how many of us, so David sends his troops out in peace, mm-hmm. probably think, you know, thinking that's the right way to go. That's what God's telling him to do. And they get beat up, you know, and humiliated. And then we maybe, uh, you know, David still doesn't, um, he still is seeking God's word instead of being Mm -hmm. mad at God. Or, you know. In a a way, it's action. Yeah. Because when David was a young man and 
the and the rest of the army would not go out and yep no fight be fight against the the giant mm -hmm. there he is a young kid and he has action mm -hmm. you know what he does it mm -hmm. so it all goes back to your faith and action I love that I love that how easy is it for us to just sit back and say well we know what the right answer is would would your would your coworkers say you're a Christian? Would they? Would your neighbors know you're a Christian? I mean, let's be honest, folks. If you're not acting in your faith, and, and maybe it's not just acts of service, it's it's also personal. It's also your dedication to God. Um, it's it's showing God that you go to Him when you're worried about things first, and not to fifteen other people. Uh, before, you know, and He's last on the list. Do you begin your day with prayer, or do you end it with prayer? Do you begin it with trying to get into the Word? Or does it just come whenever you have, you have five minutes? You know, how you spend your time is like your money. You know, where your treasure is, so is your heart. Your heart will be also. Folks, you know the right answer, right? Your treasure is your time, your money, your effort, your energy, your focus, your dedication, your love, your passion, your skill, your, your, your spiritual gifts. Where those are spent, and time is the biggest, that shows your dedication to God and to others. Okay. I've heard it said that uh, if, uh, to ask ourselves, if we were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Mm -hmm. Makes you think. I sure hope so. I want Makes it to be. Really yeah. So it's exactly. not enough to put up Easter decorations and Christmas decorations and not see your house? <laughs> uh, <laughs> even the pagans fall after that. <laughs> Great. I got a question. Yes, ma'am. It's not about Melchizedek, is it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. All right. I just wanted to just... <laughs> no, uh, back to the beginning. Did you say there's no zero in the years? There's no Correct. zero? Correct. I thought that's when Jesus came was zero. Came no. zero and then Jesus came. In fact, the concept of zero is a recent one in history. Um, <clears throat> the concept of zero is actually a recent invention. Um, there is no zero. Uh, there was one BC and one AD. And Jesus was born in 4 BC, we think, because the calendars were corrected in the Middle Ages. That's a whole separate topic, so. But good question. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for joining us. <laughs>